I'm John Golia. And I'm Greg Fife. And we are the, the Flight Safety, Safety Detectives. Detectives. We're just two guys who have spent most of their career with the National Transportation Safety Board investigating aircraft disasters and aviation safety issues all over the world. Yep, and this podcast is where we talk about everything from accidents, airplane technology, to the big business of aviation. We live and breathe aviation. My co-host, John, has been in the aviation business for more than 60 years. He was the first and only airframe and power plant mechanic to get a presidential appointment to the National Transportation Safety Board. And Greg is a former air safety investigator and go-team captain for the NTSB. He's investigated everything that flies worldwide since he started his career 40 years ago. And on top of that, he is a living legend of aviation inductee. So between John and myself, we have over 100 years of aviation safety experience. It's time to buckle up because it's going to be wheels up. Let's get this show in the air. Well, good day to everyone. I'm here again with my good friend, Greg Fife, and we are about to undertake a essentially moment-by-moment analysis of the events leading up to the Lion Air accident. We've been talking about it for quite a while, and we are uh, about to go into the detail that many of you have been asking for. Yep, and I appreciate always talking with you, John, just because we always have the, uh, (laughs) at least the entertaining perspective of challenging each other, looking at all of these detailed facts, and then trying to put those facts in in proper context. You have educated me immensely on a lot of the the little nitnoid maintenance issues that sometimes I read them, but don't really comprehend them. You've put, put them in context for me. And as we've gone through this report over the past several months, it, it has become more and more evident about when this whole accident sequence started, which was at the beginning of October and not the day before the accident. Yeah, it started on October 9th. They were nursing this airplane along with problems. And it's uh, pretty well hidden in the events, but every once in a while, it does pop its head up. I'd like to take it back just to before the airplane took off on the fateful day, take it back and just touch some of the high points of the maintenance misadventures that occurred prior to this accident. And we'll take it back just a couple of days to October 26th. On October 26th, the the flight crew reported problems with their airspeed and problems with their altimeter. They had flags on the primary flight display on the captain's side, and they flew it with those flags from China to Indonesia. Then it gets a little fuzzy with what happened. They don't mention what action was taken, Yeah. but then there was a reoccurrence of the problems. There's a troubleshooting process there that this report never dissects, never talks about what these guys did, like you said, to identify what the problem was, come up with a solution, and then return the airplane to service. And it's obvious they didn't, if they did do anything, it wasn't the right thing because the problem popped up again. Right. So after three days from the 26th, after three days, the the night before the third day, they replaced the AOA sensor, which is the little vein that's on the side of the airplane that tells you whether you got nose up or nose down. The one they replaced it with was not a brand new unit from Boeing. This was a brand new airplane, relatively speaking. But they replaced one that had been installed on an airplane that was manufactured quite a few years earlier. It had been repaired by an 
a repair station in Miami. It was sitting on a shelf in Indonesia as serviceable, waiting to, uh, to be put on an airplane. We know that the unit was not overhauled properly because that repair station that did the work ultimately had their certificates removed, and ultimately they were sold to Collins Aviation. And the FAA went in right after this information started to come out about where that AOA, what its history was. They went in and, and really did their job. They, they went in and dissected the operation, see how they were doing these overhauls, and found that they weren't doing them properly. So, you know, maybe we'll take a second here and just talk about what that means. There's a repair manual that all of us in maintenance has to follow. It's a set of procedures, just like the pilots have procedures in maintenance, we have a set of procedures for 121 carriers for airlines and the repairing of, of those parts for the airlines. So the FAA went in with the NTSB and they took a typical unit and they asked them to go through their overhaul process while they watched and made it up with the paperwork, the process that they were supposed to follow. And it didn't take very long when they found out what the process that this repair station was using was not in accordance with the manual. The tooling that they were using or the test equipment they were using was not approved to be used on this, this particular part. And uh, because of those problems, it was certificate was removed so that they no longer could do that work. But in any event, this unit that went through the improper procedure was sitting on the shelf and it got installed on an airplane. Now, one of the things you have to do when you change an angle of attack, I keep calling it transducer. That's what we called it in my, in my day. When today they call it, these uh, I even forgot already. The vein. <laughs> the vein, they call it. A, anyway, they replaced it, and there's a test that has to be done. There's a tool that Boeing has uh, specified, and it's a tool that you slap on the side of the airplane, secured on the side of the airplane, I should say, Maintenance term, slapping on the side. <laughs> you put on the, the airplane, it's held in position, and then you move it by degree, nose up or nose down, and you compare that to the instruments in the cockpit. And they also have a procedure in there, in the event you don't have that tool, that you can use an alternate procedure. And the alternate procedure is you move the vane to full up, neutral position and full down, and you read it on the on the computer that it's working properly. And that's that's how they calibrate or are supposed to calibrate that newly installed vane because these vanes don't come already calibrated. Right, to the airplane, to the system. So that was done, supposedly. They said it was done. We know from the flight data recorder that it wasn't done because immediately after this, this work was done, when the airplane was taken off, it was 21 degrees bias. Bias means it's not pointing in the right direction. So it was 21 degrees saying that you had nose high when in fact you were level. So there was no way that that alternate method could have been uh, performed. And in fact, what really screwed me through the roof with that is these guys were so convinced they could get themselves out of trouble, if in fact they were in trouble, that they provided a photo to the investigative yeah. authorities that they said was a copy of the, the flight director, and it showed that uh, the work that they had done. Yes. But they were so out of touch with the airplane, they failed to realize that down in the lower corner of the display was the date and time. 
<laughs> and it was two days after the accident. Yeah. So it's just, just yeah. Yeah. how, how this, air, this facility still has a, a, a certificate to repair airplanes is beyond me. And it's a demonstration of the lack of character and the thought that they could hoodwink investigators by doing this and, and calling it the actual airplane and proving that they did something. As soon as, if that was me, that would have really triggered me and put the red flag up to know that they didn't do it. And would have dug into, into their operation a yep. lot deeper than what we see in this report. Absolutely. All right, so the airplane continued to go. And then the following morning, the airplane uh, operated from Jakarta to Deepaki. Yeah, it's out by Bali. All right, and according to the DFDR, the flight had the same problems as the previous flight. So they didn't fix anything. Yeah, and, and the report doesn't identify that and then make hay of it later on. But it, it at least... They identify that, okay, there was still a continuing problem. Right. So he, he's now got bad information. And since it wasn't written up, and he had the crew that flew it in with the stick shaker from Bali back with the stick shaker going off the yep. entire flight. Yes. The stick shaker's telling you that you have an angle of attack problem. They didn't write it up. So they negated the benefit to the outgoing crew the next crew was going to fly this airplane, to know the history of the airplane. They verbally, and I'm assuming verbally because they said that they verbalized it, but who knows in that part of the world, but they verbalized to maintenance that the stick shaker was triggered going off. Now, that should have raised all kinds of flags with maintenance, but apparently it didn't, and they, yeah. re and then they released the airplane. It, it just makes no sense to me, John, that... If I remember right, it was the maintenance guys who actually talked to the crew and said, hey, we can't fix the airplane here. So right. fly it back to Jakarta where they can they can do the work. And this crew accepted the airplane rather than saying, I don't care what you got to do. Give me a good airplane. Well, but they're not giving them good airplanes. They're giving them trash. This airplane was unairworthy for days before the this event occurred. And uh, it's just, it impeaches the maintenance process that they have over there grossly. And it makes you wonder, these guys had to have known that that airplane wasn't airworthy in some way, shape, or form. Uh, I believe that they probably were told that the airplane had problems with the angle of attack indicator or speed, at least the speed and altitude flags, because they sort of took that in stride. Yeah. If they didn't know about the uh, stick shaker, that's criminal on the part of maintenance guys. But you know what? There's so much criminal action in this in this maintenance department. It's uh, I just can't believe that they weren't impeached better than what they were. I mean, you have a you have a mechanic telling the guy, "Well, it was raining out. We couldn't do a wiring check," and then it comes up again. Must have been rainy season over there. Another visitor comes in. And he said it was raining too hard. He didn't want to do it. He was afraid of lightning. Yeah. So, in fact, yeah. what he had to do was inside the electrics hatch. So he wasn't really out where the lightning was going to bother him as long as he didn't put his metal ladder up to the airplane. Yeah. So I don't understand why. He, that doesn't pass the smell test. Yeah. I think he was just using it as an excuse to get the airplane out of town, which appears to be what they do on a routine basis based upon the maintenance issues that I see here. 
just keep it moving, keep it moving. And from what I understand, they never went back to Boeing. Like you said, this was a relatively new airplane. You got, you know, field service reps for the manufacturer. You got a chronic problem or a systemic problem, you pick up the phone and you go, hey, can you send one of the guys out here and help us troubleshoot this, figure out what's going on with this with this airplane, rather than, okay, we'll go through another vendor, we'll get a third party. I mean, that, that AOA vein that they eventually put on the airplane was off a, an NG, a 737NG, been sitting around for a long time. They put it on there, and then they don't calibrate it? I mean, what? No, it defies description. I mean, that's just, that's just nuts. So... Now you have an airplane that's returned to service, is sitting in Jakarta, and now you have the accident crew show up for an early morning departure. And in looking at the report, the Indonesians described the, the crew got on the airplane, and they're doing their pre-takeoff, or actually their, their pre-brief of the situation of the airplane. But, you know, it, they were talking about benign things. They were talking about, you know, instruments that really, you know, I think it was the uh, automatic direction finder or the ADF that uh, had a problem with it. It was in op. But they never talked about any of the maintenance issues that you just described. Yep. It was, it was hidden because it wasn't in the book. But there's also another piece that's missed by everybody. Right? That airplane left 45 minutes late. Yeah. And they never, never, never once said why. Never said why. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, when in any airline, whether it's here or around the, the world, everybody wants to be off the gate on time. And, you know, there's, there's, and this was the first light of the day at 5.45 in the morning. Yeah. So it wasn't late equipment coming in. It wasn't crews that wasn't positioned waiting for them to come in. Yeah. So originating delays in the U.S., Maintenance departments and, and loading crews have a lot to answer for for originating delays. Airlines hate them. And then the Indonesians, um, they put together in their report a history of flight. And after the uh, the crew finished all of their uh, their briefing duties, got the airplane all buttoned up, pushed off the gate and started taxiing, uh, of course, they were doing the appropriate checklist according to the summary. And one thing we should mention here is that unlike here in the United States where the National Transportation Safety Board will do a verbatim, 99.8% of the time, a verbatim transcript of everything that's on the cockpit voice recorder, they do occasionally, the NTSB does occasionally summarize whether, you know, there may be some, quote, non-pertinent information or discussion. If the crew is talking about their family, has nothing to do with the flight and had no bearing on the accident, then the board will characterize it in a generic or gen general type term. But the Indonesians don't produce a uh, verbatim transcript. So they don't identify each and every single word. They put a synoptic in here based on time hacks of what the crew may have said or use phraseology or actual specific words. And then they talk about what was recorded on the flight data recorder during that same period of time. So it's more of a summary than the actual verbatim transcript of, you know, the exact words and, and that kind of thing. And the other thing that you, you can never get out of, whether it's a summary or even the transcript of, uh, of a CVR, is there's no emotional inflection. So you don't know if these guys are screaming at each other, yelling at each other, 
talking in a normal voice, whispering and things like that. You can't hear the sense of urgency and, and that kind of stuff. But you can infer from the words that were used in the Indonesian report what was going on, basically the, the decorum that was occurring in the cockpit. And there's an interesting fact, John, that was buried further in the report. And that is, is that the first officer told the captain, hey, this isn't my regular schedule. He had actually gotten called out at four o'clock in the morning to show up for this flight. They don't really get into his 72-hour history for fatigue and that kind of stuff. And then when the first officer is in the cockpit, the captain tells him he's sick and he's hacking, he's coughing. They recorded it in a summary further in the report that the captain was coughing 15 times and that kind of stuff. Those two elements right there. Race multiple flags. Exactly. You got a sick pilot. You got a captain who's sick. So again, everybody knows how they feel when they're sick. You know, you're coughing. You just don't feel good. You're not really plugged in. You know, you're thinking about how bad you feel. And then you get a first officer who may be in a fatigue state. So he may not be all there as well. He's plugged in trying to get up to speed you know, a little tired and, quote, not his regular schedule. So he's out of his rhythm, if you will. You know, it's been widely reported that this airline pushed their flight crews. Long days, yes. long duty days, minimum rest turnarounds. Yep. So they don't mention that anywhere in the uh, history of the flight and so pages we, where we would, as NTSB would. Uh, exactly, because, I mean, we go back and we look at the, you know, their their physiological history, especially if they say they were sick. I mean, look, when you look at uh, what, what uh, the NTSB looked at, just in the Buffalo accident, that Continental Express accident, the first officer on that was sick. She was sick. Right. She had been flying the system because she was commuting in. She was sleeping in a um, in a crew room, and the board really dissected you know, not only her illness, but her fatigue state as well. And I didn't see any of that really discussed in this, uh, in this report. So then, you know, as the crew gets out to the runway, they, uh, they do the, uh, the normal things, talking to ATC, getting a clearance, and uh, they get the airplane ready for takeoff. Of course, they line it up. They, uh, they do, I guess, what you could consider as a lineup check. They start to fly. The captain is the flying pilot. The first officer in this case is the pilot monitoring, and um, they start their takeoff roll at 20 minutes past the hour of six, and the airplane starts to accelerate down the runway. Now, the NTSC, which is the Indonesian version of the NTSB, they talk about per time hack what was going on. So, you know, 15 seconds after the power was pushed up, the first officer called the 80 knot call, which is where the first officer and the captain, when the first officer calls 80 knots, he'll look at his airspeed indicator, captain looks at his airspeed indicator to see if there's parity between the two. The flight data recorder indicated that there was apparently about a three-knot speed difference between the two airspeed indicators. That's not enough to call for an abort or, or be concerned. Um, or even noteworthy. Yeah. So that would have been normal. It's just that the, the flight data recorder does give you better fidelity as far as the data. But again, you have to see in context whether that's pertinent or not. So the one cue that did come up as they were accelerating 
was the fact that these are PFDs, or the primary flight display. They're glass cockpits. Uh, it, this airplane's a glass cockpit, so it uses the equivalent of a TV tube to project information for the pilots. It's airspeed, altitude, vertical speed, pitch attitude of the aircraft, uh, navigation information, a variety of things. There's a lot of information on the PFD. And it has cues on the airspeed tape. It's a tape that moves vertically. So as the airplane accelerates, the numbers move one direction. It decelerates, it moves it in an opposite direction. But when you've programmed your flight management system with the appropriate aircraft weight, some of the temperature conditions and, and altitudes or your pressure altitudes, it will give you reference cues as to, for takeoff, how fast the airplane has to accelerate to a specific speed to hit the, you know, your V1 speed or your rotate speed or your V2, which is an acceleration speed after the airplane becomes airborne. And in this particular instance, as the captain's airspeed indicator, his vertical or his uh, airspeed tape was coming into play, the Indonesians identified that the there are certain warnings on that airspeed tape called barber pole. They're checkered. They could be yellow, they could be red, but they, they basically are a visual cue to the pilot that you're getting into an, either a, a warning area or an alert area. And in this case, they were saying that the low speed barber pole, which is the cue for the pilots to see on the airspeed indicator that if the airplane is in a certain attitude, the airplane is too slow, that particular barber pole showed up over the top of one of the cues. And then the overspeed, which again is another warning cue on the airspeed tape to indicate that the airplane is going too fast, that particular barber pole showed up right over the top of the rotation marker, the speed cue for uh, the pilot to rotate. Those two visual cues that occurred on the captain's side should have cued him that something was wrong. And he hadn't gotten to the rotation speed yet, according to the timeline that the Indonesians put together. So he had the ability to abort at that time. And that should have been a cue for him to know that something's not right here because those same indications weren't showing up on the first officer's airspeed tape. Nonetheless, about 20 plus seconds after the takeoff started, that is the takeoff roll started, the first officer was monitoring. The captain initiated the rotation of the airplane, that is to cause the airplane to lift off. Immediately, as soon as the airplane became airborne, briefly, the airplane became airborne, the stick shaker, which is the stall indication for the pilot, it's basically a vibrator that's in the control column. That is the primary cue that the airplane is approaching or getting into an aerodynamic stall. Well, that stick shaker activated and through the investigation, it was determined that because of the inappropriate or improper calibration of the angle of attack vane, it provided bad information into the computer that activates the stick shaker, and it actually caused the stick shaker to fire, basically indicating that the airplane was flying slower than it actually was. And that's because they... I'm asking this question. Yeah. And that's because the uh, speed of the airplane was too slow to 
to support that kind of nose-up attitude? Well, there's a, you, you bring up a good question there. We're not really sure, and the Indonesians don't talk about it, but they do put a factoid in the report 34 pages later, 35 pages later. At rotation, when the airplane became airborne, the stick shaker activated. Now, the, the airspeed was good because the, the first officer had good airspeed, but they never talk about what the airspeed was compared to the standby because there's three airspeed indicators on that airplane. They never look at the standby. They don't do any comparison. But when the airplane became airborne, stick shaker went off. The airplane actually retouched the runway. So it was off the runway and then touched back down. Nobody's talked about that. And it's a little factoid buried way deep in the report. Even the Indonesians don't talk about it. They cite it as a fact, but they don't analyze it as to what may have been the cause. Personally, I believe that soon as the pilot got stick shaker right at the air, as the airplane rotated because you pulled the, the control column back, soon as stick shaker happened, he released the, or relieved that back pressure of the, the just a little bit, right? just a little bit, and the airplane settled back to the runway, touched back down, and but then he pulled again. And the airplane became airborne and started to climb away. But nowhere in this report is that dissected as to the importance and the pertinence in this whole sequence of events. At the same time, right at rotation, as the airplane was coming off the ground, the crew got a takeoff configuration warning. Now, typically, a takeoff configuration warning happens when you don't have the, the flaps properly set and you push the power up. And we saw that in an accident involving Northwest Airlines. Right, Detroit. And the crew failed to properly set the flaps. They pushed the power up trying to take off on a runway. They get the takeoff configuration warning saying, hey, the airplane isn't properly configured for what you want it to do. Well, you don't normally get it on liftoff, but that's where the takeoff configuration warning sounded and the and not only did it sound it sounded briefly but the first officer actually called it out but there was never any response to that other than the captain asking a little later on what that was all about but then it was a, a conversation that was abandoned after that right four seconds later he asked that yeah and then they never discuss it again you know one of the things i was negligent in when we started this discussion is for those people out there listening to us that want to follow with the report, you can go on PAMA's website. PAMA is the yeah. Professional Aviation Maintenance Association. So it's P-A-M-A dot org, O-R-G. And up there under the podcast, if you log in with the podcast, I can go in and actually get a copy of this report if you want to follow along with us. And, and when you look at just again, this history of flight, there are time hacks. So as the airplane is accelerating, takes off, it became airborne. Of course, it touched down. They did get the takeoff configuration warning. These are critical elements that were never discussed. They were discussed as a fact, but they were never analyzed into the whole sequence of events and what pertinence they may have had in identifying crew issues, airplane issues, or a combination of both. And so you're now basically 45 seconds into the actual flight from the time the power was pushed up for the takeoff roll into the initial climb. And again, there are some pertinent facts that are buried throughout the report that unless you read the entire report with every word, you won't find it. 
And How convenient. It, yeah. It's because these are pertinent issues that, you know, don't support MCAS. Because MCAS is inhibited as long as the airplane has flaps configured and the autopilot off. Pilot has to be manually flying the airplane. And given the fact that the flaps are down during the initial stages of takeoff, you are going to have MCAS inhibited. So now, of course, the airplane takes off. 45 seconds after the power was pushed up, the airplane comes airborne. They get the stick shaker in this takeoff configuration. The first officer questions the captain about returning to the airport. The captain never responded to him. But then again, shortly thereafter, the first officer says, hey, what do you want to do about this? Go back to the airport. And the captain says, no, we're going we're gonna to go to a holding pattern. When you start looking at the sequence of events, John, just in that first 45 seconds to a minute, there are a number of things that took place that have an effect not only on crew performance, but could shed light on aircraft performance. And that is the fact that the stick shaker activated. We know why from the AOA vein, but why would the takeoff configuration warning occur? Most likely it was because stick shaker went off at a point, time, and space when it shouldn't have activated. But again, no one ever talked about that. In the official investigative report, no one's talked about it and, and tried to remedy or at least come up with a solution for why that happened. Yeah. And don't forget the auto brake disarm light came on too, yeah. which is the wrong point in the flight for that to come on. So something else was going on. And so from a maintenance standpoint, you know you got a sick airplane. And as a crew, you start to see things that are not normal during that phase of flight. I mean, the thinking there is, we're going to keep going. Now, there is a commitment to fly because they, they got to a speed where they should fly. But you fly to return to the airport. You don't fly to fly away from the airport and presumably go on to destination. Well, you know, it's funny you, you're raising that going to destination. I recently read in, uh, I think it was Aviation Weekly, that uh, Lion Air's policy was much like our friends at ValueJet. Mm. You don't complete the trip, you don't get paid. Wow. And it includes the, the back-end crew, too. Mm. So the pilots and the flight attendants would not have received their pay for that flight if they returned to the gate. And we've seen that, too, in the past, you know, that pay-to-play. We saw that a lot with, uh, quote, the early commuters slash then the early regional carriers here in the States. And that was one of the major complaints is, and that's really what prompted a lot of these accidents was pilots trying to complete the flight so that they got paid. Right. And I wonder if that wasn't here because some of his actions really defy uh, the description. And they, and they do suggest that, you know, because uh, instead of coming back to the airport, he wants to go out to a holding pattern, trying to figure it all out and then presumably go on to destination. And if you look at the day before... That's exactly what they did. They don't want that airplane on the ground in Bali. They're going to milk it back to Jakarta. I don't care how sick it is. And so dissecting the report at 21 minutes after, after the hour of six, 6 o'clock in the morning, as these events were starting to unfold, immediately the captain asked the first officer to perform memory items for unreliable airspeed. Now... It's obvious that the captain had good situational awareness. He knew what was going on. He knew he had unreliable airspeed because he had some disagree 
lights. They're not sound. They're not horns. They're not whistles. They're not bells. They're anything. They're lights. And it was obvious that he understood that they had unreliable airspeed. Again, there is no discussion between the captain and the first officer about unreliable airspeed. But the first officer does call ATC and ask them how fast they're going based on what the air traffic controller is seeing them do on radar. And the, the air traffic controller gives them a speed. The problem is that's ground speed. That is not an actual airspeed. But you can use it to kind of figure out possibly how reliable one airspeed indicator may be if that airspeed is kind of close, if you will. But you got three airspeed indicators in the cockpit. I was just going to say that. And in fact, the crew the day before had used the standby airspeed indicator to determine which airspeed was good. Yet this crew didn't. And that's part of training. That's you, you're trying to use all the tools that are available to you. And they failed to use all the tools that were available, which was that standby airspeed indicator to figure out <laughs> which airspeed indicator captain or first officers was correct. And so as the airplane then continues, the FO never, never responded to the, the captain's command to perform the memory items. And it's really just two memory items. Those memory items are autopilot off, auto throttles off. Because when they took off and they hit the takeoff go around switch, that engages the auto throttles on this airplane. And part of the checklist items basically are to relieve the airplane of automation, autopilot off, auto throttles off, so that you're hand flying the airplane. That never occurred. The first officer never acknowledged it, never ran a checklist, nothing recorded on the CVR. And the FDR does indicate that the auto throttles did, in fact, remain engaged, which was contrary to the procedure. At 21.44, which is 21 minutes after the hour and about a minute and a little over a minute and a half into the flight, the FO, the first officer, asked the captain, hey, what altitude do you want me to tell the air traffic controllers on the ground that we're going to come back to the, to the airport? He asked them, you know, what should we tell them when we're going to fly the downwind? This is when the captain rejected the return to the airport and told the first officer to request a holding pattern. You have a sick airplane. Why would you go out to a holding pattern? I mean, it's flyable. It's obvious that it's flyable because the captain's flying it. Does he have stick shaker? Yeah, but there you start to fly pitch and power because you have an unreliable airspeed. You haven't really gone through the procedures to determine which airspeed is correct. But regardless of that, there is a procedure to fly a prescribed pitch attitude and a prescribed power setting. And oh, by the way, the weather was good. So you can look out the window and see where the nose is on the horizon. You have an artificial horizon, an attitude indicator in the airplane to tell you where the attitude or the nose position is relative to the horizon. It's a prescribed procedure that they failed to even think about. Just one of several. But it's, I mean, these pilots are professionally trained crew, supposedly, flying an air carrier airplane for an airline. And again, we go back to the training piece. What was in their training syllabus? What were they trained to? Yes. It's unique to every country in the, in the world. So the U.S. obviously has very rigorous training. Most of Western Europe has rigorous training. But other places may not have such rigorous training. We've heard some 
folks talk about that. And I wish they would have dissected the training program because I think in previous podcasts, you and I have had this discussion briefly, and that is when a manufacturer prints their manuals, whether it's a AFM, the airplane flight manual, whether it's a maintenance manual, whether it's any updates, they're printed in English. So those English manuals go to Indonesia, they go to Ethiopia, they go everywhere else. But what language are these pilots being trained in? And as the old saying goes, there's always something lost in the translation. So how in-depth are those training programs? How deep do they go in detail into aircraft systems and, and operations and that kind of stuff? And are they doing it through a computer-based training? Are they doing it through an instructor who's droning on for eight hours a day that people have tuned out? What methodology was used to train this crew, these pilots, in the operation of this particular airplane, or any airplane for that matter? It starts to tell the story here. And again, at this point, you're only a little over a minute and a half into the flight. They don't have the auto throttles off. They do have the autopilot off because the pilot's hand flying, the captain's hand flying the airplane. MCAS isn't armed or activated because the flaps are still in the takeoff configuration. The pilot should have been flying pitch and power at this point because he knows he's got unreliable airspeed and they're still trying to figure out what it is that they should be doing about that. And the FO is talking to the controllers. So he's still, he's basically unplugged from what's going on in the airplane because he's talking to the controllers, trying to comply with their instructions to fly headings and altitudes and everything else, rather than being a little more assertive and saying, look, we got a problem. Give us a block altitude or, you know, whatever, or, hey, we're coming back. He's still out there, you know, just conversing with the air traffic controller. They, the controller asks him, what's the nature of your problem and things like that versus being very, very succinct. And we've got an issue. We're not going to talk to you anymore. Stick us in a place where we can figure this out. We're probably going to come back or whatever. That's an unnecessary distraction that's going on at a critical point. They're just on takeoff. They have some sort of issue. It hasn't compromised the controllability of the airplane, but they don't know the extent of it at this point. He's just talking to the air traffic controller. The captain doesn't want to go back to the airport. And he wants to go to a holding pattern. I think that was a wrong decision. You got a sick airplane, get it back on the ground as soon as you can. And again, we saw this kind of attitude as well with Alaska 261, where they knew they had a problem in flight. And instead of troubleshooting it like they were trying to do and milk it up the coast to, again, back to a maintenance base, they should have put the airplane on the ground. They over, in that case, 261 overflew 10 airports that they could have landed at. Yes. While they still had control of the airplane. Right. They lost the airplane because they didn't know the severity of the problem. They knew they had a flight control problem, a pitch problem, but they didn't know the severity of it. That's a common thread you see fairly often is that you've, you've got a problem with primary flight controls and the crew wants to troubleshoot it in the air. And the outcome is almost always not what you want. Yeah. Right? You know, here's a case where they got a perfect, they got an airplane that's flying good. You can, on, the, on 261 Alaska Airlines MD-80, you can fly with a trim stuck in the position. You can actually land it with the thing at really grossly out of trim if you have enough runway. 
LAX has got a 10,000 or 11,000 foot runway. So they certainly could have landed in LA. They overflew LA. Plus, there's a couple of military bases out there we didn't even talk about when we talked about that report. Yeah. But troubleshooting problems with your airplane in flight is one of the dumbest things pilots can do. If you've got a problem, put it on the ground, get it looked at where it's going to cause no additional problems. Because like in the case of Alaska, their attempt to troubleshoot finished. It was the coup de grace to the airplane. The airplane was fine, stuck where it was. But they were playing with it, trying to break the stabilizer free, and they, they did. did. Yeah. It's that kind of thing. And we've seen it with in-flight fires with Swiss Air. Instead of messing around with the fire, just get the airplane back on the ground. Who cares if it's overweight? Put the airplane back on the ground. You'll eventually fix it. Good morning, John. The ground is Canadian 920. We're just coming up to Alpha Juliet. So as this scenario continues to escalate, the first officer suggests to the captain, two minutes into the flight, the first officer suggests to the captain, hey, you want me to raise the flaps from the five-unit position to the one-unit position. This is the FO suggesting to the captain rather than the captain commanding this. Now, you can surmise that the captain is flying the airplane. He's got this stick shaker going. So he's dealing with that. He's trying to assimilate all the information. He's not really thinking about flap schedules. So the first officer prompts him, hey, do you want me to pull the flaps up? To which the captain says, yeah, bring him up from five to one. So you're two minutes into the flight. MCAS is still not armed and it is definitely not activated because the flaps are still down two minutes into the flight. It was an interesting point that at two minutes and 14 seconds into the flight, the captain directed the first officer to take over flying the airplane. Again, it's hard to understand why the captain might do that, given the fact that he's the one in the best position to understand what's going on with the airplane. He's already developed that sense of feel for the airplane as far as its flying characteristics and, and what he's got to do to keep the airplane going in the right direction under control. But he really wants the first officer, captain directed the first officer to take over. The fortunate thing here is that the first officer told the captain to stand by and he's told him to stand by because he was still answering the air traffic controllers instructions and trying to comply and figure out what they wanted him to do or what they wanted the crew to do. So the captain continues to fly. Two and a half minutes into the flight is when the first officer says, hey, you want me to pull up the rest of the flaps? And the captain finally agrees. So by the time the flaps actually come to fared or zero, fully retracted, that airplane's been in the air for three minutes. No MCAS, no MCAS activation. Now, there are some altitude deviations and airspeed deviations because the pilot's hand flying the airplane at this point. They're hunting altitude because there was a disparity with altitudes as well as the airspeeds. But he's manually flying the airplane. The auto throttles are still engaged, so the airplane is accelerating quite rapidly. Yet there is no MCAS arm. There is no MCAS activation. And it wasn't until two and a half, almost a little over three minutes into the flight that the flaps finally come to retract. But just before they finally come fully up, the enhanced ground proximity warning 
gives an oral alert saying bank angle, bank angle. And that's because the captain who's flying the airplane rolled the airplane into a 35 degree bank turn, which exceeded typically what the standard would be at 25 degrees. And again, that's because they're trying to hit headings and altitudes that were provided by the controller rather than just telling the controller, hey, if we're not coming back to the airport, then send us out into space, give us some altitude. We're trying to figure out an issue here. But they're trying to comply with controller instructions that want them to make turns left and right and, and change altitudes. So now you're trying to deal with an airplane problem. You're not really sure what the airplane problem is. You got stick shaker going on, which is kind of annoying. It's not detrimental. You can fly the airplane with the stick shaker. You got all these distractions in the first three minutes of the flight. And we haven't even touched on MCAS as far as its involvement. And in fact, that time at three minutes into the flight with the auto throttle still engaged, they were doing 251 knots at a low altitude. That's a lot of speed. That airplane wasn't even near stall or any, anything else. But again, it's all about situational awareness. And the first three minutes of flight is a demonstration that there was some situational awareness on the part of the captain. He was able to control the airplane. The airplane kept climbing, but they didn't really have good crew resource management. They weren't really conversing and communicating as they should about the situation and that kind of thing. But the most disturbing thing, John, <laughs> is the captain asked the first officer early in the flight, right after takeoff, run the memory items. And the first officer basically ignored him and never did anything. Yeah, we're almost three minutes in and he's not addressed that at all. No. And the question is, okay, so the captain asked him, why did he wait so long? Because he does ask him later on, but why did he wait so long? And if these are memory items, the captain should know what they are and he should have at least done them. And the, I mean, it's very simple. He knows the autopilot's off because he didn't turn it on, but he knows where the auto throttles are. All you do is just put your hand on that, on the throttles and click the button. So again, none of this is, is really dissected in the grand scheme of, of what was going on in this sequence of events. These are all important bullet items, essentially. There's no reference to them anywhere that they took them into consideration of what happened. No. They didn't. And again, the airplane was flying. It was fully under control. The captain had the airplane fully under control. Even though it was zooming because they had the auto throttles engaged, it was climbing. It was maintaining altitude. The captain had full control of the airplane. He's the one that was making the inputs. He was trimming the airplane. And in fact, the stab trim, uh, the stabilizer trim, the only reason it changed from the original takeoff setting was because the captain had made some trim inputs, but soon as MCAS became armed, it activated. That is as it was designed. Why? Because it was being fed bad information, but the MCAS can't discern it. It thinks that, you know, based on the bad AOA probe out there or the vein out there, it indicates, okay, you've got a stall condition, and it started to roll trim, and it rolled the nose down trim for 10 seconds. The key here. The key here, John, is that even though it rolled it for 10 seconds, the nose started to pitch down, the captain recognized it and actually pickled the trim or activated the trim against all of that that was being rolled in by MCAS. So in effect, he negated what was put in and in fact told the first officer right after that, 
put the flaps to one. As soon as the flaps went down, because that's flaps and slats, as soon as he deployed the flaps to one, MCAS is inhibited again. So he had some good situational awareness. He didn't know that it was MCAS doing it. He just knew that he had an uncommanded nose-down trim input. But apparently he, he had some awareness that, hey, when the flaps were down, hey, this, this trim wasn't moving. As soon as I put the flaps up, it started to move. So, hey, Joe, put the flaps back down. And he did. And it inhibited MCAS. So you got no MCAS again because the flaps are deployed. And then all of the trim inputs that the captain was making were because he was flying the airplane. Now, the flaps being down is going to change the, the pitch attitude of the airplane. So aerodynamically and with the increasing speed, you're going to have to retrim. That wasn't MCAS driven. That was pilot driven. He was adjusting the pitch attitude and the stick force with the trim intentionally. And that's the way he was flying the airplane. Then at one point, he kind of lost some sort of situational awareness because the airplane got into a descent of better than 3,500 feet per minute, but he only lost 600 feet, realized what was going on, was able to recover the pitch and use the pitch trim to control that. When they got the flaps down, when the flaps actually hit one degree down, the stick shaker actually stopped momentarily. And again, there was no discussion in the system's description as to how and why that could have happened or would have happened, but it wasn't MCAS. It was because the flaps aerodynamically, the AOA probe, the combination thereof, the stick shaker stopped momentarily. And then again, now you're coming into about three, little over three minutes. The nose up input by the captain was all intentional. The MCAS was inhibited. The captain's making the pitch trim inputs and the airplane is controlled. They're flying. And they're trying to comply with all of the air traffic control instructions, headings, altitudes. Yeah, was it a little sloppy? Sure, because he's got stick shaker and he's flying a sick airplane. But, I mean, at this point, three minutes into the flight, they're doing 322 knots with the auto throttle still engaged. <laughs> they were smoking. They were at a high rate of speed. And... You know, again, they're not flying a, a particular pitch attitude. They're not flying a power setting because the autothrottles were still engaged. But all of the trim inputs based on the flight data recorder were done intentionally by the captain who was moving or activating his trim switch. Three minutes, a little over three minutes into the flight, they already have the flaps at one. They put the flaps down to five. That was a benefit in one way because it continually kept MCAS inhibited. Don't know why they went to five, because they sure didn't slow down. Right. They're probably already over the flap speed. But why they went back down to five, there was no discussion between the crew. None. There was no real communication. But when you put the flaps down, of course, the pitch attitude of the airplane aerodynamically is going to change. It's going to require the pilot to, again, adjust the pitch using the trim. And he did. And it was all intentional, as recorded on the flight data recorder, that he was moving the trim, nose up for several seconds and, and that kind of thing to fly the airplane. At uh, three minutes and four seconds, the stick shaker reactivated. But 
the pilot had established a 1,500-foot-per-minute rate of climb with a three-degree nose-up attitude. If MCAS was firing, it would have been trying to drive the nose down. So we know MCAS wasn't there. We know MCAS wasn't activated because the flaps are down. So he's now continually flying this airplane manually without MCAS involvement. And we're coming up on four minutes into the flight. So for four minutes out of an 11-minute and 37-second flight, Four minutes, the first four minutes, MCAS has only triggered one time for eight seconds. And all of the trim that MCAS put in, the nose down trim, was negated or taken out by the captain activating the trim in a nose up attitude and then redeploying the flaps to inhibit MCAS. So again, now he's flying just an airplane that has no special system, no mysterious system activating at all. With the auto throttles still engaged and the flaps at five degrees, the FO's airspeed indicator was recording 340 knots. Now, you're a maintenance guy, John. 340 knots with the flaps at five, what would that suggest to you? Well, if they continued at that speed, he might not have flaps. That's right. You know, those flaps, you know, have an airspeed limit. And again, they aren't flying, you know, the airplane, quote, fully manually because they've they've got the autothrottle still engaged. But up to this point, we're now almost three and a half minutes into this flight. There is no discussion between the captain and the first officer about airspeeds, comparing the airspeeds, comparing the airspeeds on each one of their respective airspeed indicators with the standby. None. Right. And the captain, at the same time frame, the captain's got uh, on his display, low speed and over speed. Yes. (laughs) Two displays, which should have said, hey, they can't have it both ways. And if he looked over to the first officer's side, which he could see. And he could fly cross cockpit because I was able to do it in the simulator. Right. But you got the standby. (laughs) You know, and that's really all you needed. And again, if you really go back to a default position, it's pitch and power because there are a prescribed schedule for uh, pitch and power. And so... And a clear day. And a clear day. And so now we're, we're almost four minutes into the flight, three and a half minutes into the flight. The captain commands the first officer to do the memory items again. That's a minute, almost two minutes after the first time he asked him to do it. And the first officer, again, there's a bit of silence there based on the Indonesian's report. And the first officer doesn't know what those memory (laughs) items are. Meanwhile, the captain is still moving the trim, activating the trim, nose up. He's flying the airplane because with those flaps down and the speed increasing, nose wants to go down. He's trimming it up. Again, these are all intentional activations by the captain. No MCAS, no other magic system on this airplane. These are all trim inputs by aerodynamic force or prompted by aerodynamic forces with the increased in speed. And again, we're now three and a half minutes into the flight. The first officer finally responds to the captain's request to do the memory items. And the first officer says, flight controls? Now, to me, I think what has happened is he doesn't know what they are. But then he's going to go look in a book 
and try and find them. And he's wondering what section in the book those items are. And he responds, flight controls. And the captain says, yeah. Well, five seconds after that conversation, and we're three and a half minutes into the flight, the CVR records the sound, quote, similar to paper pages being turned. Now, here's the problem I have with all the so-called experts, all of these guys who, yeah, they're world-renowned pilots and airline pilots and everything else who have proclaimed that this cockpit was just full of bells and whistles and pandemonium and confusion and these guys didn't know what was going on and oh my God moment kind of thing. If the cockpit area microphone, which sits about two and a half feet above a pilot's head, can record the sound of paper pages, not just pa paper pages, being turned, then there couldn't have been a whole hell of a lot of noise in there. Yes, you probably still had stick shaker going. Yes, you had occasional trim movements. But there was no screaming. There was no pandemonium and confusion and all sorts of bells and whistles to drown out the sound of pages being turned, paper pages being turned. You know, as we went through the simulator ride out there in Seattle, the scenario was flown three times. And I sat there waiting for all the bells and whistles. I heard the stick shaker, heard the tone for trim moving. Yeah. But I wasn't overwhelmed by the sounds. There were <laughs> the, the only sounds were me asking the sim pilot, okay, I'm trimming, I'm doing this, and he's giving me, you know, his feedback. But that's what this crew is doing. And if you read the transcript, they're talk they're still talking back and forth. I mean, it's not like, oh my God, I can't find this. I can't hear you. I don't understand you. It's dude, I don't know where to find this. What section of the book should I be looking in? And while that is taking place, John, while that is taking place, for the next minute, the captain is continually activating the trim. So now we're better than four minutes, close to five minutes into this flight, closer to five and a half minutes into this flight. No MCAS. Why? Because the flaps are still down. So it's inhibited. So they're not armed, they definitely aren't activated, and all the trim movement is being done by the captain, and the airplane is under control, it's flying. They're up at around 5,000 feet. Now they're smoking along because the auto throttles are on and they're almost 400 knots. But this airplane, now for almost half the flight, little better than half the flight time, is still under control by the captain. And every time... He needs to make a trim movement. He just activates the trim. The airplane's under control. They haven't lost control. They aren't trying to troubleshoot control of the airplane. And so, again, all of a sudden now, you have a scenario where the first officer finally tells the captain, hey, I can't locate the unreliable airspeed section in the manual. And it's like... It was almost a minute he was, he was looking through it. Yeah, the question is, here is a professionally trained pilot who has some experience in airplanes, big airplanes, at this carrier. One, he doesn't know the memory items. Two, now he doesn't know where in the manual he should be looking. How is he in the cockpit? And when we look at his training record, which is later in this report and hopefully in this podcast or another podcast, everything that happened in training with this guy is mirrored in the cockpit in this accident scenario. 
And this is a telling sign. I don't know what they are, and I don't know where to look. And in fact, the CVR, again, after he makes that statement, they, you can hear the pages turning in the manual. He's yep. hunting through the manual. Meanwhile, this airplane's motoring along at almost 400 knots. And, I mean, the captain's doing what he can to keep it under control. And it just floors me. But the bigger thing is, for six minutes, five and a half minutes, there is no MCAS. There is no MCAS input. There is no MCAS activation. And the Indonesians bounce between terms, which I don't know if it was intentional or not. The first time the nose-down trim activated, they call it automatic nose-down trim, i.e. MCAS, because the conditions or the configuration of the airplane were such that it would trigger MCAS. Then they referred to the nose-down trim as MCAS. But then in the latter stages of the flight, right before the crash, they go back to automatic nose-down trim inputs. Whether or not that was intentional or they just wanted to try and emphasize MCAS or whatever, who knows. But to this point, you're talking coming up on 0625, which is five minutes after the power was pushed up for the initial takeoff. There is no MCAS. There is no MCAS activation. One of the strange things, though, is that at five minutes into the flight, the flaps start to retract from flaps five to flaps one. There is no discussion about that other than the fact that they say flaps move from flaps five to flaps one. The Indonesians say in the report, there is no conversation between the crew regarding flap movement. So how did they move? Who commanded them to move? Captain didn't say anything. First officer didn't say anything. Who actually moved that handle from flaps five to flaps one? Did they get blown up because of speed? There's no discussion whatsoever. But even with the flaps moving from flaps five to flaps one, there still is no MCAS. It's not active. It's not armed because the flaps only go to flaps one. But there's no discussion. The discussion they are having, though, is the first officer is still talking to air traffic control, taking altitude and heading instructions. That's a huge distraction because he's not plugged in. He's rifling through a manual trying to find procedures, and he's still talking to a guy in his ear. And if there was all this pandemonium and confusion, how is it that he was able to carry on that conversation with the air traffic controller trying to comply with their instructions. And it's obvious that <laughs> the communication between him and the captain wasn't because of, you know, pandemonium and confusion. It was because this guy really didn't have a basis of understanding of what he should be doing and where he should be looking to help remedy this situation. But we're six minutes, so coming up on seven minutes into this flight, there is no MCAS because the flaps are still in a down position. And again, the first officer comes back to the captain and tells him, I still can't find unreliable airspeed in the manual. Dude, really? I mean, 
They've got to be in the abnormal procedures. You got the book out. You just, I mean, you're a professional pilot. You've gone through training. How is it that you don't know the memory items, but how is it that you can't find them in a manual? Look in the index. And I think that gets back to our conversations that we've had. Pilots are supposed to be level four English proficient, but that doesn't necessarily ensure that they are level four proficient in comprehension of the English language. They just know the words. If they don't understand English, then, I mean, yeah, it's one thing to try and speak it. It's another thing to try and read it and figure out where you need to be going. Under pressure. Yeah. High stress, high anxiety. The big picture starts to collapse. Then five and a half, six minutes into the flight, all of a sudden now, the flaps, when they moved from five to one and there was no discussion, now they move from flaps one to fully retracted. Again, no discussion, no command by either pilot. It's just the fact that these flaps moved back up into the retracted position for unknown reasons and by an unknown <laughs> authority or you know command. I mean, how did they get there? Never talked about by the Indonesians, other than the fact that it was a fact that they happened. So now you've had six minutes in a six-minute flight activated MCAS for a total of 10 seconds. That's it. So in the first six minutes of flight, MCAS is only activated for a total time of 10 seconds, which the captain was able to negate by a nose-up trim input that interrupted MCAS and took out what was rolled in. All of these people who became an authority, all this activity, and the MCAS was driving this airplane, and that's all they kept trying to do is stop the MCAS, stop the MCAS, the nose kept going over at the ground and, and all this stuff. It never happened. And that's not me saying it. That's not you saying it. That's the Indonesians saying right. it. And it's just, it, I mean, up to that point, six minutes, this airplane is fully under control, albeit a little different. It's fully under control. The first officer finally finds the section for the unreliable airspeed and starts reading the procedure. And now that the flaps are fully up, of course, MCAS is armed and then activates. But for the next five minutes, the captain, every time MCAS would put in an input, and it was varied. It wasn't a continuous nine seconds or 10 seconds. MCAS would start to roll the trim nose down, maybe three seconds or four seconds or five seconds. The captain interrupted it. So apparently he was cued that when the nose down trim started rolling in, because of course the trim wheel's moving, he would pickle against it. He would stop it. Soon as he interrupted it, of course that resets MCAS, but he would put in enough nose up trim to mitigate or negate what the MCAS had rolled in. And he did that successfully for well over five minutes. He did. MCAS activated for six seconds and he counted it. Yeah. He With would, seven seconds. Exactly. It, so he's taken out what, what MCAS was putting in. Right. That's why he was able to hold altitude pretty good. That's why the airplane wasn't diving towards the ground at Mach 4, is because he would take out what MCAS rolled in for nose down trim. He's got it down to a rhythm. 
Yes. His MCAS activated another time for seven seconds, and he took it out with six seconds, and then it's back. And all that time, the units of trim in it were in the green, essentially. Yes. They were within the normal range. So because, he, he kept it within the range. Because when the airplane took off, the stab was set at 6.6 .6 units. And if you look at how many units, based on the flight data recorder, it varied from 4.8 into 6.1, 5.8, 5.5. So he's in that band. He's got the airplane under control. And he's doing a really good job. But the other thing is, he has developed, like you said, that rhythm, that tactile sense of what the airplane is doing. He gets it. He's got it. Now, the question is, why did he not just turn off the stab trim since this thing kept moving uncommanded all the time, even though he was controlling it? Why didn't he just turn off the stab trims and then manually trim the airplane? I mean, that's the normal procedure for runaway trim. Yes. And so why didn't he do it? And where's the first officer in all this other than answering radio calls from the air traffic controller? You know, and that causes me to pause for a second and look back a page in this report. The flap movement, to five degrees to one degree up. When that happened, when he went from one degree to zero degrees early on and he started to have the MCAS problem, yeah. he called to put it back to exactly. flaps down. So that would lead me to think that the first office is moving this flaps. Without telling well, the captain what right. he's doing. Now, whether he's doing that because he's silently reading some procedure, we'll never know. But it's obvious that when you hear the pages turning and it happens to be at the same time those flaps are moving, you might be able to draw the parallel or the conclusion that, hey, he must be reading something and he's doing this, but he's not telling the captain what's going on. And so we're now almost 10 minutes into the flight. The airplane is still under control. It is still flying, albeit waving up and down on the altitude, and the airspeed is continually increasing. And these guys are trying to follow headings that the air traffic controller is giving them. But for every MCAS input, the captain took it out using the trim switch. Because every time he activated trim, it inhibited or interrupted MCAS, so it can't roll anymore. It would reset. He would take it out. As soon as he let go, of course, MCAS would trigger, but he was countering it. I think the biggest issue now is here's a guy who's got the airplane under control. He's got the feel for the airplane. The communication with the first officer isn't very good. And of course, the first officer really, I think, is situationally unplugged because he doesn't really know what's going on. He's hunting in the book trying to figure out how to fly the airplane. But the captain finally commands the first officer to fly the airplane. But just before that, another distraction popped up. Do you know what it was? Do you remember reading it? The controller. And there was one more distraction that is unexplained. At the beginning of the flight, John, early in the flight, before they taxied out, they were at the gate, a engineer from the company got on the airplane and introduced himself, popped his head in and said, hey, I'm on the flight, but I'm not rated on this airplane as an engineer, maintenance tech. He's sitting in the back. So now we're 10 minutes into a flight with a sick airplane, and the first officer calls the flight attendant. The first officer calls the flight attendant, yet it's not recorded what prompted that call. Most likely it was the captain, but the Indonesians don't write about it. 
It just says that the first officer calls the flight attendant to the cockpit. She comes in. He says, get the engineer that's sitting in the back. And then about 30 seconds later, you hear this person come into the cockpit and the captain say, see, look what it's doing. Then there's no response. This guy's not rated on the airplane. He doesn't know what's going on. He's just standing there. They just created another distraction. Now they got two people in the cockpit that have no business being there, especially in a critical phase of flight under a critical circumstance. (laughs) All this self-induced distraction. And again, no one talks about it in this report. They mention it, all these distractions, but these are critical elements. And especially when you're trying to fly the airplane because you don't know what's going on. Right. As you're talking, I'm looking at how many times that he kept bringing it back into the green range. Exactly. There was like 10 times. Yep. Over and over and over. And the captain's got it. He's got the airplane under control. And then he brings this engineer up and says, see what it's doing? Yeah, what's it doing? And then that, that all goes away. And then the captain tells the first officer, fly the airplane. Get on the controls. Well, it's the big difference. The captain's time on the on the pickle switch, on the switches on his control column to go to nose up varies from the minimum was four. I saw one four second. Mm-hmm. Most of them are five, six, and uh, nine, up to nine. So the captain is calling nose up up to nine seconds, and he's keeping the trim around 5.5 units. Yes. Yes. So the airplane is under control. It's maintaining, relatively maintaining altitude. It's not screaming to the ground at Mach 4. And the captain's doing a really good job. I just don't understand why he never turned off the stab trim because this trim keeps moving on its own. Right. He didn't Regardless work. of whether it's a fault with the system itself or, quote, MCAS, it doesn't matter. The fact that it's just moving uncommanded should I, have prompted him to take some action to stop it. I wonder what his training was for runaway trim. Exactly. And again, that's not discussed in this report. So with all that being said, you are now basically 10 minutes into this flight. The airplane is still flying, albeit MCAS is activating occasionally. And the captain's doing his job to keep the airplane under control and negate it. And despite the fact that there's all these distractions, which the Indonesians do describe in a generic sense, yeah, they had all these distractions. The distractions were not bells and whistles in the cockpit. The distractions were air traffic control and somebody, the flight attendant and and an engineer coming to the cockpit. It was not warnings and alerts and all this pandemonium and noise that supposedly everybody thinks happened in that cockpit. And so now, 10 minutes into this flight, the captain tells the first officer, you fly the airplane. Actually, it's 10 minutes and 48 seconds or 47 seconds. Yeah. It's almost 11 minutes. But when he turns control of the airplane over to the first officer, what doesn't he do? He doesn't give him a turnover. He doesn't tell him what's working. Right. He just says, you got the airplane, and he goes off and starts doing other things. Yeah, he assumed because he's sitting next to him and he'd seen what he was doing. But while he was sitting next to him, he was on the radio. He was in the flipping pages trying to find what he should have known in his head. Yeah. Calling the flight attendant. So now you got the first officer who really doesn't have a good sense or feel for the airplane. It's smoking along at almost 400 knots. And 
the first officer's telling the captain as he's flying the airplane, because the, the nose wants to keep going down, he only pickled the trim or activated the trim for two, three, four seconds, even though MCAS is driving it a little longer than that. So he's never taking out what MCAS was putting in. Yeah, he put in three seconds at one point, which is half of what the captain was doing. Exactly. And in one case, it's actually a third of what the captain was doing. The first officer then makes a comment to the captain telling him the airplane wants to fly down. Okay? It wants to fly down. The captain, I mean, they're motoring along, John. I I mean, the ground is right there. It's not that far away, and they're just speeding towards the ground. The first officer tells the captain the airplane wants to fly down, and the captain's response was, it's okay. It's okay. And he goes back to whatever he was doing. He never took control of the airplane, never coached the first officer. He should have taken command of the airplane right back. Yep. They never slowed the airplane down. All of this is taking place, and it took place in a little over a minute. The captain had the airplane under control for better than 10 minutes. He turns control over to the first officer that has no understanding of the airplane, let alone flying that airplane under those conditions. In a little over a minute, that airplane goes into the ground at a very high rate of speed. And it wasn't out of control. It was a controlled flight into terrain. Everybody wants to say, oh, the airplane was out of control. No, it wasn't. The airplane was under control if somebody had acted as a pilot and maintained control of the airplane. All you do is pull the power off and pull the stick back, level the airplane. Yeah, the first officer repeatedly put the trim in one second. More MCAS activation, put the trim in for two seconds. So he was falling behind every time it activated. That's right, and it became cumulative. They were in a descent rate of over 10,000 feet per minute down. At what point, what point do you get plugged in and go, hmm, that's not right? The only, quote, sounds, according to the Indonesians, the only sounds, besides the pilots that were talking to each other at some point, stick shaker, trim movement, and the last sound right before impact, the clacker for overspeed. Three oral warnings that weren't going off at the same time throughout the flight. If that creates pandemonium and confusion, then I don't know how you can be in a cockpit. So for all of that, when you look at all of this, John, we've taken our time to kind of walk through it. Yes, there's more detail. Yes, I mean, we've dissected in capsulated form the hits throughout the flight. But in that 11-minute, 37-second flight, that airplane was fully controlled until the last minute and 20. And it was the turnover Right. No, no instructions to the first officer. I've been taking the trim out. I mean, all he had to do was look down at the, at the trim indicator and just keep it in the green. Yeah. And, oh, by the way, let's pull the power back, slow this thing down. Nobody's paying attention to airspeed. Right. And the first officer had good airspeed. The standby, I'm sure, said the same thing. He had good airspeed. And they're motoring along at 400 knots. And they were worried about complying with ATC instruction, altitude, headings. I mean, they got into a turn. It's like, dude, why are you doing that? Then they call the flight attendant up. Then they get another guy in the cockpit. 
I mean, all of these self-induced distractions. This wasn't a distraction caused by the airplane. It is one of those things, John, I don't know who's going to listen to us, who's actually going to follow through, whether the folks up on the hill are actually going to take a look and go, you know what, we didn't look at this event this way. It's just very difficult that when you lay this out, and again, we're just using what the Indonesians wrote. We're not putting a spin on it. Read it for yourself. Right. Do the timing like John and I have done. It's and, right here in black and white, right in the front. History of flight. And when you look at not only when MCAS did activate, but MCAS was basically null. It was neutralized by the captain every single time it activated. And it wasn't until the first officer got on the controls without any kind of knowledge, tactile knowledge or mental knowledge, other than what he observed the captain possibly doing. That's what caused the airplane to go into the ground. And the captain never got on the controls. You see the airplane going to the ground at Mach 4. Why would you just sit there and let it happen? Where's that command authority? Where's that captain stuff? As Goose told Maverick, do some of that pilot stuff, Mav. <laughs> Where is that? Well, we got a lot of more detail to cover yeah. in, in the future episode. We have covered the entire history of flight and thrown out all the things that we have identified as being concern points. And it's just amazing that other people, especially the, quote, investigators and other, quote, experts, didn't take the time to read this for what it's worth. They read it to try and make a story that it was MCAS. They've reverse engineered the facts. And that's the problem I have. That's the problem you have. That's the problem we have. Because... This tells the story when it's read in context properly. In a future episode, which will probably be the very next one, we're going to go over the, some of the facts around the airplane. Look at the training. I want to look at the pilot's training records yeah, yeah. next. Yeah, the training records are going to, like I said, everything that you're going to see in the training, the pilot's experience in training, happened in this cockpit on the accident flight. Fly the way you train, train the way you fly. That's right. So with that being said, we know that uh, this was one of our longer podcasts, but we wanted to make sure that we gave you sufficient detail about the sequence of events, the activation of MCAS, since this is the software system that everybody wants to focus on. Yet the investigative authority has demonstrated by their own words that MCAS was a player late in the game, and that, in fact, it wasn't the, the initiator, it wasn't the causal factor of the descent, but, in fact, it may have exacerbated a situation in the last minute of flight. But this airplane was under control, and MCAS had nothing to do with causing this accident because the airplane was flyable and could have been brought back to the ground safely had the captain maintained control chosen to go back to the airport it was obvious that they got it because every time he put the flaps down it inhibited every time he activated the trim it inhibited so that defies description why did the captain keep pushing what was the motivation to keep him going he obviously did not want to go back yeah all his actions indicate to me that he had no intentions of going back I think you're right, John, with what you said earlier, and that is 
They were out to accomplish the mission. It was obvious from the day before to milk the airplane, a sick airplane, from Bali back to Jakarta, and that that's what their norm is. We will go come hell or high water. Unless the wings fall off this airplane, we're going. And it's obvious that seems to be the mentality. And they forced it into an issue where, again, they could have been successful because guess what? The guys the day before were successful with the same scenario. These guys, and the captain was successful for 10 minutes. It was the first officer who was unsuccessful and wasn't being coached and monitored or over, you know, overseen by the captain. Right. You can't give it, put all the blame on him because he just had no awareness of what the captain was doing or for the amount of time, because he did go right to the trim to counter it. Yep. That had to be instinctive. Hey, the airplane's doing something I don't want it to do, so I'll go against it. It was just, why didn't he just turn it off after the second or third? (laughs) Right. The fact that they're flying all these minutes and not recognizing runaway trim and not eliminating the trim. Well, John and I hope that at least you get a better understanding of our position, where we're coming from as far as the facts, conditions, and circumstances. We wanted to make sure that we dissected this sufficiently enough and tried to put it in some plain language to give you a better picture of the sequence of events, because there's been just so much misinformation in the mainstream media and by a lot of talking heads that really haven't taken the time to dissect it and look at the facts, the conditions, and the circumstances. And John and I will continue to do this with not only the Lion Air Report, but I'm sure that we're going to have this same kind of discussion several months from now when the Ethiopians finally publish their version of the accident report involving the 737 MAX. So with that being said, we always appreciate your feedback. We would love to hear your comments regarding this show. And again, we know that this is probably one of our longest shows. But again, it was one of those things where we wanted to make sure that we stayed in context and stayed with some continuity so you understood what we were trying to emphasize with regard to the sequence of events of this accident. So please get in touch with us. Come back to us in in some form or fashion. You can always reach us via our email, which is flight safety detectives with an S at the end at gmail.com. We would really appreciate your feedback. If there are questions about what we talked about today, definitely don't hesitate to put that in an email. John and I will get back to you. We'll either email your response or we'll talk about it on the air in upcoming episodes. But again, we always appreciate you listening to us and we look forward to talking to you more and more and more about these safety-related issues. And don't forget, if you want to follow the report, it's available at PAMA, stands for Professional Maintenance, Aviation Maintenance Association. So PAMA.org. On the top right-hand side where it says podcasts, and go into the podcast and the, the entire report is there to be downloaded. And if you're looking to really help us out with this show, and again, we're going to be working to give as much good content, great content as we can. John and I want to go video at some point, but it does take resources, financial resources. If you want to be a contributor or a sponsor to our show, you can always go on the PAMA website. We are working with PAMA to put together sponsorships for the show because it does cost money to produce this show. And we look forward to having a number of sponsors because they like what we're doing. They like the message we're trying to get out. We're trying to promote aviation safety in a black and white way, no color. That's what John and I live by. That's what's on our business cards. That's the business we promote, black and white. You think that we're right? 
Great. You think we're wrong? That's even better. Why? We want to hear your opinions, but we also need your support. And your support is both by email or feedback and then, of course, financial. So again, please don't hesitate to get in touch with us. We appreciate you as our listener and basically as an aviation consumer, because we want you to be at least in the know when it comes to safety-related issues in aviation. So with that being said, on behalf of my good friend and colleague, John Gulley, I'm Greg Feith. Fly safe. To listen to more episodes of the show, go to flightsafetydetectives.com or the Professional Aviation Maintenance Association at pama.org and wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Catch us next time when John Golia and Greg Fife talk about all things aviation. Thanks for listening.